At the summer camp that I attended when I was younger, there would often be a song or an album that became inexplicably popular for a few weeks, not in the rest of the world, but just among some part of the camp population. And sometime in the mid-90s, for whatever odd confluence of reasons, John Cougar Mellencamp's 1983 album, Uh Uh-huh, at least a decade after its initial release, became an unexpected hit in that small corner of western North Carolina. Some of you may remember some of the singles from that album, Crumbling Down, Pink Houses, anyone? Anyone? All right, a few, a few, a few John Cougar Mellencamp fans. Uh, or maybe you just heard them on the radio. It may have been uh, unintended. But the big hit that summer, though, was track three, Authority Song. Does anyone remember that tune? All right, a few. All right. Uh, that song has a, it's a fairly defiant uh, anthem, and the chorus goes, I fight authority, authority always wins. I fight authority. Authority always wins. Well, I've been doing it since I was a young kid and I come out grinning. I fight authority. Authority always wins. And I heard that song a lot that summer, but after a few weeks, I suddenly realized that although the music sounds like an anti-authoritarian protest song, the lyrics are actually really depressing. So he's singing in this really positive, upbeat, fist-pumping-in-the-air kind of way. But over and over he's singing, I fight authority, but authority always wins. And it struck me after weeks of hearing this song, that's a terrible song. (laughs) It's catchy, but it's a terrible message. I'm reminded of a political cartoon that I saw about a month ago with two panels. Both panels show the same person, but the caption above the left-hand panel says, Then, and shows a scruffy-looking hippie with long brown hair, a a bushy beard, and John Lennon-style glasses. He has on a leather vest over a white t-shirt that says, Question Authority. His left hand is raised in a peace sign. Now, the caption over the right-hand panel says, Now, and depicts that same man, presumably 40 or 50 years later, and he's wearing a T-shirt with the Obama campaign logo up here on his chest, and there's a slogan underneath it that says, Question anyone questioning authority. (laughs) And instead of a peace sign, he's holding a subpoena. During a national political campaign, everyone wants to be perceived as a Washington outsider, seeking to subvert the dominant paradigm. But once you're in power, it's easy to find yourself questioning anyone who questions your authority. Looking to recent headlines, we've seen President Obama visiting relatives of Nelson Mandela, who may be on his deathbed. Talk about questioning authority. Mandela served 20 seven years in prison. I mentioned before that you know, Tim McChristopher served a few years in prison. Nelson Mandela served 27 years in prison for his anti-colonial and anti-apartheid activism before being vindicated through his election as the first black president of South Africa. And of course, the first president elected through truly democratic, you know, a truly democratic vote of all the citizens of South Africa. Africa. 
Or look at Egypt, where opinions vary widely about whether the Egyptian people were wise to overthrow their first democratically elected president. But from President Obama's conflicts with Congress to Egypt's struggle to live into the full promise of the Arab Spring to our own daily work with various authority figures in our lives, the dance is a tricky one between authority and accountability, between cooperation and control. In the spoken meditation, I invited you to consider who are or have been positive authority figures for you in your life in the past or present. For myself, one of the first things that comes to mind are some of my professors, that even though they were grading me, I just wanted to sit at their feet and soak in their lifetime of knowledge. And the fact that they were grading me and had some authority and ability to impose consequences on me, that made me focus more intently, research more thoroughly, and revise many more times than there's any chance I would have done if left to my own devices to learn about that given subject area. That's a good authority figure as far as I'm concerned, which isn't to say that I didn't have professors that were boring, unfair, condescending, or who burdened us with useless busy work, or, to, or killed 500 deer, right? Uh, to give another example, although there's much to criticize about the racially based uh, stop and frisk tactics that many police departments are employing, and we've discussed some of that in our discussion about Michelle Alexander's important book, The New Jim Crow. If you weren't here when we discussed that book, I'd encourage you to put that on your summer reading list. There's a lot to criticize about that. At the same time, when a strange man who happened to be white grabbed my wife Megan's arm a few weeks ago and started yelling at her when all she was doing was walking in a straight line down a public sidewalk toward the Louisville Convention Center in the middle of the afternoon, she was grateful that three uniformed officers pedaled by on bikes at that precise moment. She yelled for them, and three burly, strapping officers suddenly were standing between her and that man, and she was able to proceed safely to meet me a few blocks away. So there's a lot to be said about authority in general, authority in politics, authority in all different aspects of her life, but I'd like to turn our focus for this morning to authority in Unitarian Universalism and in UU congregational life. And the reason I'm bringing up this subject this morning is that the Unitarian Universalist Association's Commission on Appraisal released a new report a few weeks ago. You can all buy it or download it for your Kindle reader if you're curious, titled, Who's in Charge Here? The Complex Relationship Between Ministry and Authority. Now, we're about to dip briefly into a few nerdy details of UUA governance, but bear with me. I think it's important for us here on the local congregational level to be aware of what's happening at that associational level of the Unitarian Universalist Association. Uh, and the Commission on Appraisal is a nine-member committee of elected volunteers who are charged with conducting independent reviews of any aspect of the UUA that it deems worthy of interest. And this commission publishes a report about what it's learned at least once every four years, just like the Olympics. 
Now, ironically, I can't help wondering if the choice to focus on authority in the past four years was affected by the rejection of the Commission on Appraisal's last proposal four years ago, back in 2009. So they spent four years researching a topic around Article 2 of the UUA bylaws, which involved the principles and purposes. If you look on the back cover of your order of service, those sources and principles, that's actually in Article 2 of the UUA bylaws. So they, they made a proposal for revising that. That's actually required, um, to give one brief footnote, every 15 years, Article 2 has to be revisited by the UU Association. So we're a non-creedal people. We believe in deeds, not creeds. And there's a real easy way that these principles and sources, as great as they are, could become a creedal test in UUism. So that's why that... So they weren't just bringing it up. In some ways, they had to. But interestingly, one major... One reason that it was rejected, their proposal that they spent four years working on, was they wanted to change those six sources that you see back there. They wanted to change it to three paragraphs. And what they brought was accused of not being poetic or it changed some language that some people didn't like. But the recommendation to even consider the proposal at the next two general assemblies failed by 13 votes. That dance is a tricky one between authority and accountability, between cooperation and control. And in an adaption of the Commission on Appraisal Reports title, I've titled this sermon, Who's in Charge Here? The Dance Between Shared Ministry and Authority. The term shared ministry is a buzzword in some circles about what congregational life should be or could be at its best. And basically what it means is that we should avoid a perception that ministry is only something that the paid ministers do. That it's not really ministry unless you know I'm in the room, for example. Or the equally harmful perception that my job is simply to tell you what to do and then you can go and do it and I'll sit back here and relax. There's probably no danger of that actually happening here. But uh, to me, though, naming shared ministry as our way of being together or our goal, it's the difference between asking someone, would you do this for me or would you do this with me? I need some help. To me, the difference between those two approaches is all the difference in the world. Shared ministry is about partnership. It's about power with instead of power over. The approach of shared ministry says that we're together in this work of transforming ourselves and of transforming this world. In somewhat of an equivalent to the Commission on Appraisal's role at the associational continental level within the UUA, we here at UUCF have a Committee on Ministry. And once a year, that Committee on Ministry, on the ministry that we're doing here, is charged with facilitating a congregational conversation with all of you about the state of our shared ministry. Be on the lookout for information about that event that will be coming up in September. This year, the Committee on Ministry is planning to partner with the Comprehensive Planning Committee to shape a, the conversation as we continue to work to discern what is the best focus of our shared ministry here at UUCF for the next three to five years. Now, there are, of course, 10,000 things, 10,000 worthy things that we could do as a congregation at any one time. But if we try to do all 10,000 of those things, which we've tried to do sometimes, our attention and energy will likely end up scattered. 
and will likely accomplish less than if we join together to focus on three or four or five things, which of course doesn't preclude individuals and groups from doing other ones of those 10,000 things that feel particularly vital to them. But as Unitarian Universalists, our independent streak that empowers us importantly to question authority, it can make us much better at pursuing our individual goals than in joining together to accomplish four or five big, major things that are only possible with all of us working together. And that complex dance with authority comes into play whenever some individual or group tries to herd the cats. The Commission on Appraisal writes that we have come to understand authority as the ability to influence and cause growth or change or to block and derail growth or change. And that catalyst for change or that derailment of change can come from any part of our shared ministry, from the minister, from the board of trustees, from committees, from individual members. Reverend Fred Muir, who's been the minister of the Unitarian Universalist Congregation of Annapolis for, I think next year will be his 30th year as the minister of that congregation, and who has helped that congregation grow and mature. Fred's also been very active on the continental level of the Unitarian Universalist Association. He wrote last year that he sees three major factors holding back Unitarian Universalism from growing into its full promise. He writes, first, We're being held back and stymied. Really, we're being held captive by a persistent, pervasive, disturbing, and disruptive commitment to individualism that misguides our ability to engage the changing times. Second, we cling to a Unitarian Universalist exceptionalism that's often insulting to others and undermines our good news. And third, we refuse to acknowledge and treat our allergy to authority and power though all the symptoms compromise a healthy future. Now, he unpacks all of this in a lengthy essay that I would encourage you to read. I'll footnote it in the version of the sermon that goes on our website. And there's a lot more to be said about those three critiques. And again, I encourage you to read the full essay and consider them. But for now, I want to move from his criticism to his proposed solution, and you can see what you think. We spend much time, as you use, talking about our seven principles and our six sources. Again, they're listed on the back of your order of service. But Reverend Muir says that we too often miss the context in which those seven principles and six sources, we focus just on that middle section in which um, they're found. But again, look on the back page. Actually, go ahead and turn to it. And notice that the first sentence that introduces those seven principles that we hardly ever pay attention to, we, the member congregations of the Unitarian Universalist Association, covenant to affirm and promote. Notice that word covenant. We'll come back to it. Notice also the final sentence in the paragraph after the sources at the very bottom. As free congregations, we enter into this covenant promising to one another our mutual trust and support. Notice the repetition of the word covenant and the promise of mutual trust and support. The parallel situation here at UUCF that, that congregations enter into with each other on the continental level is that as free individuals, we are invited to enter into membership in this congregation promising to one another our mutual trust and support. We use tend to be really good at that free individual choosing part. 
But Fred invites us to consider how much more might be possible if we spend at least an equal amount of time emphasizing what becomes possible when free individuals invest themselves in mutual trust and support. In the hope of myself, of your elected UUCF Board of Trustees, of your Committee on Ministry, of your Comprehensive Planning Committee, as well as the many more individuals and groups here at UUCF, we've had many conversations, we'll have more about those, is that our way, is that we're on the way, slowly but hopefully surely, toward discerning a focus of our shared ministry, of what we might accomplish together through a three- to five-year strategic plan, through that covenant of mutual trust. And support. This coming Tuesday, July 9th, marks the one-year anniversary of my time serving as your minister. Yesterday, July 6th, was the 10th anniversary of my ordination as a minister. So considering all this talk of who's in charge here, I'd like to say a few words about that dance of congregational dynamics that some of you have heard me say what I'm about to say before, but I think it bears repeating as we take a step back and try to understand some of the underlying dynamics that shape how we are interacting together now, how you as a congregation have interacted in the past, and how we're living into in the future. Sociologists call congregations with an average worship attendance of 50 people family-sized congregations, and authority tends to be held by a lay leader who functions as a patriarch or matriarch. Now, you may have a a minister, a paid part-time minister perhaps, in a worship attendance of around 50, but it's really that patriarch or matriarch who holds the power. The minister is usually at most kind of a congregational chaplain. Now, when worship attendance starts to get past 50 and up to around 150 people, the shift moves toward what's called a pastoral-sized congregation in which the leadership of a professional clergy person can help catalyze the shared ministry of this growing tribe that's suddenly grown beyond the people that see the influence of that patriarch or matriarch as enough. And I would reflect back to you what some of you likely already know or have sensed, that when this congregation not too long ago took a leap of faith to launch a dual fundraising drive to both fund the operating fund and to fund a full-time minister fund to make that leap to bringing a full-time minister, uh, I suspect that you could sense both unconsciously and had some idea consciously of the dynamic that sociologists have studied and named, that this congregation at that point was well beyond being large enough that it either needed to call a full-time minister or it was going to slowly shrink back to a family-sized congregation that could be held by a patriarch and or a matriarch. But we now find ourselves on the cusp of a shift towards what's called a program-sized congregation, which, depending on who you talk to and which sociologist you check with, ranges from around 151 in worship to around 400 in worship. It'll be a long time before we get to 400, I suspect. But on many Sundays this past spring, we had worship attendance in the 150s and above. And the reason I'm bringing this up is that whereas the pastor becomes, in some sense, more centrally important in that shift from a family to a pastoral-sized congregation, it's the shared ministry that becomes centrally important in the shift from a pastoral to a program-sized congregation. Studies show that 150 people is about the number of people that any individual, with rare exception, can know by name and miss when absent. Then when tribes get about that size, they tend to split. 
That's about the number of people that have the sort of what you could call the cheers effect, where everybody knows your name. So as we hopefully continue to grow past 150 people, neither myself or any other minister can hold all the ministry that is needed with and beyond this congregation. And that dance between authority and accountability, between control and cooperation, becomes all the more important to negotiate with intentionality, with mutual trust, support, and grace. If new people do continue coming through our doors, which you'll see red name tags here almost every week, trying to find out what is this Unitarian Universalist thing all about? Is this really a free place where I can find friends and a home and live into who I feel like I'm truly called to be? If our attendance does continue to increase, we'll either find our way into a healthy, shared ministry that intentionally creates programs to make room for more people, or we'll continue to shrink back down to 150 or below, which is the number that a single pastor can hold versus what programs can hold. Now, of course, a shared ministry doesn't always happen. To look at the Unitarian Universalist Association as unfortunately a negative example in the past few years, there's been a conflict for quite a while now between the Board of Trustees and between the President. I'm grateful that isn't the case here. About, and the conflict there on the continental level has been about whether the budget priorities, uh, you know, show me the money, where's the money going, have been about whether the budget priorities match the ends or goals as well as how progress should be measured or how failure should be evaluated. And I'd like to share with you just a few insights from Jenny Corter, who just ended a 10-year um, tenure as chair of the UUA Board of Trustees. I would not wish that on anyone, but... Uh, she ended that ten years, um, tenure as the UUA Board of Trustees Chair at last month's UUA General Assembly. And in commenting on what she's learned over these past ten years, she said that um, notice how that it took us six years to begin to make a small change in the, non, in the non-discrimination um, section of the UUA bylaws, and that was a required amount of time that had to pass as part of the bylaws. And she said... There's a lesson here, folks. There's a lesson here about what happens when we write bylaws in a state of mistrust. Jenny has also potentially has a word for us here at UUCF as we continue to consider the shape of our three- to five-year strategic plan, criticizing the ways that priorities can change drastically with each new UUA president. She said, you can't have a worthy vision four to six years at a time, one faddish thing after another. We need a 50-year vision of Unitarian Universalism. And part of her criticism is also her insistence that UUs have often failed to set up measurable goals, specific, concrete, measurable goals that we can see whether we've succeeded or whether we've failed. And instead, we just keep coming up with new ideas and throwing the old ones out without really knowing if the old ideas did or didn't work and no way to know that about our current ones either. And she said, you know, you can love and trust me and still hold me accountable. You can love and trust our president and still hold him accountable. And quoting again one of the UUA's anti-racism activists who had spoken earlier in General Assembly, Jenny also rightly said that if you want to know what our highest priorities are, again, follow the money. Something to keep in mind as we look over the, at our own strategic plan. 
So I'd encourage you, like with Fred Muir's speech, to I'll put a link to the full text of Jenny's um, final moderator's report. That sounds boring, right? The moderator's report. But it really turned into a sermon. She got really fiery and passionate. And it kind of served as a capstone for her decade as chair of the UUA board. But I wanted to share a few of those excerpts in the hope that they might provide some insight or challenge to us here at UUCF in setting our own vision. And as we do work toward that vision, even for three to five years, because it could seem inconceivable, it seems a little inconceivable to me, especially after only being here one year, to try to set a 50-year vision, a half-century vision. But I invite you to consider that if you study the last few decades of the Unitarian Universalist Church of Annapolis, Maryland, there's a sense in which Reverend Fred Muir and that congregation have been living into, that they're about 30 years into a 50-year vision of really trying to become what Martin Luther King Jr. called the beloved community. And it's been hard work, I think, that they tell you it has been. But they've made measurable, observable strides toward becoming a more multicultural congregation. And you can look at a snapshot of what that congregation looks like 30 years ago and what it looks like now, both its staff and its congregation, and see, they have become more multicultural. But it took decades. But even with the remarkable tenure of having Fred there as their minister for going on 30 years, I doubt that Fred will be on staff at UUA for another 20 years to see the full fruition or not of what can come from such a long-term commitment to a worthy goal. But in that spirit, again, as we discern our own vision here at UUCF in the coming weeks and months and years, I'd like to end with a reflection that I've adapted from Ken Utner. The original was written as part of a homily in a mass for deceased priests to think about, like rank by rank, how we continue to carry on the vision of those who have gone before us and to extend that vision. Ken writes, It helps now and then to step back and to take the long view. The beloved community is not only beyond our efforts, it's actually beyond our vision. We accomplish in our lifetime only a tiny fraction of the magnificent enterprise that is the work we are called to. Nothing we do is complete, which is a way of saying that the beloved community always lies beyond us. No statement says all that could be said. No covenant fully expresses our faith. No confession brings perfection. No pastoral visit brings complete wholeness. No program accomplishes the congregation's full mission. No set of goals and objectives includes everything. It may be incomplete, but it is a beginning, a step along the way. We may never see the end results, but remember, we're just the workers, not the master builder. We're just ministers, joined in shared ministry. We're not messiahs. We're prophets of a future that is not our own. That's what we're about. We plant the seeds that one day will grow. We water seeds that are already planted, noting that even still they hold future promise. We lay foundations that will need further development. We provide yeast that produces far beyond our capabilities. We cannot do everything But there's actually a sense of liberation in realizing that we cannot do everything. 
And that enables us to do something, and at our best, to do it very well. I'm grateful to have been with you here at UUCF for one year, and I look forward to seeing what we can accomplish together in many years to come. And in our search for a shared ministry here at UUCF, may we find liberation in the realization that we can't do all of those 10,000 things. And may that sense of freedom enable us to find something that we're uniquely called and gifted to do and to do it very well.